Now, there's either going to be a mass of people turn up in an hour's time because they got the clocks wrong, <laughs> or else everyone turned up for the five o'clock service and it hasn't started yet. <laughs> so, anyway. So, last week, my darling wife took me to see the new film version, Beauty and the Beast. I think we should all... I think we should have borrowed some small children as we were the only adults there that not accompanied by herds of little ones. Everyone knows the story, I think. The selfish prince and his kingdom are cursed because of a selfish act of his and he, his castle, and everyone associated with it were under the curse. If you have seen the cartoon film version, I won't do the songs, you will remember the candlestick that was actually one of the manservants beforehand, the teapot that was the cook, and the teacup that was her cheeky son. I think he was called Chip. The only way to break the curse was for someone to show they they loved the prince in his horrific form. So after a lot of coming and going, Belle, the beautiful young girl from the village, does fall in love with this horrible creature, and the curse is lifted, and the beast becomes a handsome prince, which is probably quite fortunate, really, because if he he wasn't handsome, the story wouldn't be worth having, would it, really? (laughs) And beauty and joy return to the kingdom, and all live happily ever after. I hope I haven't spoiled the film for anyone. I doubt there is anyone who doesn't actually know at least the outline of the story. But it's not the only story where a land is put under a curse and can only be redeemed by an act of love. Another example is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And who's who's seen Frozen? And there are others. Does it make you think of another story where a whole world is cursed after an act of disobedience and only an act of love can redeem it from the curse? The story of the curse in in, in creation in the Bible begins in Genesis and ends in Revelation. The curse is set when Adam and Eve are deceived by the serpent and eat from the tree forbidden them by God. As a result, the beautiful world they have been destined to live in and care for is put under the curse and destined to decay. The beautiful garden they were destined to attend is is replaced by hard work to extract enough food and stay alive. As I've found out this weekend. The curse affects the whole of God's creation. And we see in Romans 8, verse 20 onwards, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the, the one... That's better. One who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So it talks about creation being in bondage to decay and creation subject to frustration, probably quite putting it mildly. And through the Old Testament, we see the effects of the curse on the land as we see the story of one particular group and their relationship with God and their inability to lift the curse by their own efforts. Eventually, we see the ultimate act of love. God himself comes to earth and pays the price to lift the curse, sending his own son to live a righteous life in the creation and then to give himself as the sacrifice to lift the curse, the ultimate act of love. But what does this have to do with today's reading? The day of the Lord that Peter warns the readers about is the time when creation is finally released from the curse of sin. 
There are references to this event way back in the Old Testament, talking about a future event when God would vindicate his holy name, bring judgment on the unbelieving, and gather his people into a new kingdom of righteousness. Some examples of these prophecies are Isaiah 13, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Amos 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will become darkness and not light. Joel 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness. And Peter himself quoted from Joel on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs of the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There are also references to this in Zephaniah, Malachi, Psalm 102, Thessalonians, Hebrews and others. But in all these passages there is an emphasis on judgment and destruction. The New International Bible Dictionary refers to the day of the Lord as the consummation of God's kingdom and triumph over his foes and deliverance of his people. It begins at the second coming and will include the final judgment. It will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth. Peter gives a graphic description of what this will entail. Drawing on these other passages that that we quoted earlier, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The picture, by, give, the picture given by Peter is very clear. Fire will destroy the sky, the earth, and everything in it. That's in verse 10. And new heavens and new earth will stand in, the, in their place, verse 13, ready for the righteous. The end is nigh, as some prophets put it. Be ready. It's not a message that we tend to preach very much today, but we should have the same urgency that Peter explained in his letter and ensure that, ensure that we are right with God and to do our utmost to save others from the wrath of God and the judgment to come whenever I see a passage talking about the end times and Jesus return to earth my reaction is to go through the Bible looking for all the various texts that give some suggestion of what to expect the problem is none of these are very clear none of them give the whole story God has given various people what appears to be a part of the story and from that, we try to piece it together and getting things in to make, make what we think of the future will be. And getting things in order chronologically is a challenge even for the most learned scholars. And they still argue about it. Peter cuts through all this. He doesn't mention controversial subjects like the physical return of Christ, the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, the judgment according to the works, or how Christians will actually get into the new heaven or new earth. He has a simple, clear message. Be ready. His view was probably made easier as this letter was probably written before John's vision on Patmos and the prophetic description of the end time events in Revelation. In this letter, Paul, sorry, Peter, doesn't have any new 
great revelations. There is no new prophecy, just the bringing together of teachings, descriptions, and warnings from the past, challenging the readers or the hearers to beware, be alert, be ready. It's a message of warning, maybe something we don't like very much to hear even today. Are we guilty of not taking these warnings into heart? It seems strange to think that God would destroy the world, that he created and called very good in Genesis. In the account of the story of creation, one thought about this comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, where creation is waiting for this day, and that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This suggests that rather than a fireball that destroys everything, the day of the Lord entails a catastrophic purging or liberation of creation. Creation creation being free from bondage as God reverses the curse of sin and makes all things new. In verse 6 and 7, Peter, going back two or three weeks in our talks, Peter made made reference to the destruction by water in Noah's time with the flood. The water didn't annihilate, it purged. Maybe on the day of the Lord, the fire will be the purification and transformation of creation into the new heaven and earth. The stories have the whole popu- the story, the fairy stories, have the whole population being transformed. However, in the day of the Lord, only those found to be righteous will find themselves in the new world. In the stories, the change is immediate, and after the ultimate act of love, it In God's story, the death and resurrection of Jesus started the process. But it's not an instantaneous change. We are living in a time between the act of love and the transformation. We're in a time of God's grace where God gives all people a chance to change their ways and become righteous. This is the time of God's grace. A special time where God is giving mankind an opportunity to avoid the destruction that will come. It's the time of the church. Back in today's passage, Peter uses an image given by Paul in his letter to Thessalonians for the warning about when these events could happen, like a thief in the night. It will be unexpected and no pre-warning, no time to be ready. As Jesus said, be about, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We cannot find out when, nor can we influence when it will be. There have been many false teachers over the years who claim to know when the end of the world will come. And unfortunately, each of these have had their followers. So far, they've all been wrong. That's why we're here tonight. Surprise, surprise, as they always will be. Because from these words of Jesus, nobody knows. So if they claim to know, they must be false teachers. Peter's message here is to be ready. Be right with God when this day happens because there will be no second chance. How will this affect us? There is no statement here that unbelievers will be judged. He is writing to Christians so he focuses on the promise for those who do believe, who are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So he implies that those who are found to be righteous will inhabit the new earth those who are spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Why is this event called the day of the Lord? Paul explains his view in Ephesians 10, sorry, Ephesians 1, verse 10. There he is talking about 
the mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So on this day, when the earth and heavens are purged, Jesus will be head over the new creation. The bad, cursed world will be transformed into a home of righteousness under the headship of Jesus. But who are the righteous? Again, in Romans, Paul tells us, Romans 3, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So how do we achieve this righteousness? By faith in Jesus. This letter was addressed to a group of Christians, or a church, warning them not to miss out on the new world by being led away from the truth, to be right with God at all times. So there's a challenge for us today to also be ready, not to be blasé about these events, even though it's 2,000 years since Jesus was taken from the earth with the promise to return. He will keep his promise. He always does. But there is another challenge to us. If this is the time of the church, what should the church and its members be doing? Not just taking care of our own situation. This is a challenge to bring into the kingdom all those who should be saved. That calls for us to be active in spreading the good news. That is the great commission that Jesus left the church at the end of Matthew in chapter 28. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The promise of those who are righteous, the promise to those who are righteous is that they will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. And in, in, in verse 13, Peter says, But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We get a taste of what this will be in Revelation. Another re- re- revelation to, to John. When I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of, the, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That is the reward for those who are found to be righteous. Okay, let's go back to the letter. Peter talked about our Lord's patience. This was another reference to this time of grace before God's judgment. He said, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. But the reference to Paul's writing also turns back to issues in the previous chapters, I think Brad was talking about this last week, of our previous chapters of the letter, where Peter warns against the misinterpretation of Paul's teaching by these false teachers and scoffers. I think that's a lovely biblical, biblical word. About, and there was dispute about the return of Jesus. There had been an expectation that Jesus would return fairly soon after his ascension. 
And these false teachers were proposing that he was not going to return. And they were following their own desires, living debauched and lifestyles, not being concerned about the promise of the second coming and the judgment that follows. So here, Peter stands on the side of Paul, supporting his teaching. He does agree that sometimes Paul is not easy to understand. I think we'd all agree with that. I have visions of Paul dictating his letters to his scribe, then asking for the letter to be read back to him and being amazed at some of the things he had written. I can imagine him asking, asking the scribe, did I write that? Well, he didn't. It was actually the Holy Spirit working through him. The letter closes by a repeat of the warning to be on guard and a, com- common, a commendation for the believers originally reading the letter, which applied to believers through history, including ourselves. And we should take notice of, 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 of this as a good instruction for our spiritual lives. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Then his closing statement, not yours faithfully or yours sincerely, or regards or a message to people he knew in the church, as, as happens in other letters, but to him that is Jesus. Be glory both now and evermore, ever. Amen. I think we can all say amen to that.